the occupation of ghost hunter is fictional. Well, some may argue against this, however, for the sake of keeping this video quite short, I'll presume that the occupation of ghost hunting is illegitimate as a proper career, not because ghosts do or do not exist. That discussion is out of the depth of this video but rather that not enough people believe that such a job is so necessary that it would become a legitimate occupation, and as such, you would be hard to press to find a full-time ghost hunter in the same way you would find a plumber, a doctor, or a hunter of creatures that are scientifically proven to actually exist. I use these examples specifically because upon investigation of the ghost hunting occupation, not as it exists in real life, but rather in fiction, the ghost hunting occupation seems to be left to what Marxists will refer to as the proletariat. But because this isn't a Marxist essay, at least I'm trying to make it not a Marxist essay, I will refer to it as the working class, the blue collar workforce, or whatever fun words I decide to make up. Now, there are a number of examples that run counter to this observation that are easy to discard, and it can be seen that the most well-known examples of ghost hunters in fiction have been depicted in working-class settings. Despite the presumption that a ghost hunter could be a fictional parallel to a psychologist, ridding someone of their omens, as it were, in the same way an exorcist would cure insanity, these ghost hunters seem more like pest exterminators. And that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we just came to this consensus that ghost hunting was to be left up to the working class? I mean, really? Huh? I just want to explore this, so enjoy the next 20 minutes of rambling about analysis of children's television and films. Now, this is not to say that everyone who deals with the occult in fiction is of a lower class, but rather that the specialised line of work seems to have been relegated to the lower classes. This means that while Mulder and Scully investigate the paranormal within the FBI, it is by no means their vocation. If you really think about it, both investigators have worked in different areas of the Bureau, and Scully commences work in the department only reluctantly, and the same can be said of Dale Cooper of Twin Peaks fame, who finds himself in his element after being assigned to a case of a paranormal nature. It just so happens. The same can be said of the main character of Bram Stoker's Dracula novel. He's a newly qualified solicitor who just happens to land the shittiest gig of all time. So, I have to talk about the Ghostbusters. I won't spend too much time on them. Um... Yep, they're the Ghostbusters' most influential ghost hunting team in popular culture. We all know this. Um, they present an interesting counter-argument, but I'd like to uh, disassemble it. Now, the, the three main Ghostbusters, they're very well educated. We're highly aware of this. They design their own equipment and they know how to use it properly. They know the ins and outs. But really, the aesthetics of the Ghostbusters suggest that the small business is more akin to a commercialized emergency task force than an actual intellectual pursuit. You don't really need to know the ins and outs of it. Same way if you were a, like a cleaner, you would need to know how to use a vacuum cleaner. You wouldn't know how to, need to know how it works or anything. Sort of just use it once you get used to it. 
Uh, for one thing, they work in a firehouse and they also drive a hearse outfitted to look and sound like an emergency vehicle. Furthermore, the people they hire as additional members of the team, including one honorary Ghostbuster, are not geeks. The fourth member is often considered the more conventionally wise Ghostbuster, not in the college degree way, but like the actually knows what to do with their life sort of way. Anyway, the intellectuality of the main trio comes from the fact that they double as the inventors of the trade and its first occupants, with subsequent hirees being of the working class. We all remember the telephone lady who's like, we, we got one! She didn't get a degree in anything, I don't think. Maybe she did, maybe she got an arts degree. Careful, kids. This is because in the universe, no one prior to the advent of this group believed in ghosts wholeheartedly. Hence the group's commercial slogan, we are ready to believe you. They were the first of their kind, okay? They were inventors and they happened to double as the trade members. There are intellectuals who are apparently interested in paranormal activity, as you see in the beginning, specifically psychic powers, Look how that turned out. I mean, yeah. All in all, Ghostbusters is by many measures a strange film. It's as simple in some ways as it is complicated in others. And I really don't want to talk about it anymore, so we're going to move on. The first example, it stands out from all the others I'll discuss because it's the only one in which the bulk of the ghosts that have featured are not actually ghosts. The antics of the Scooby-Doo gang have always possessed a class element, I will argue, as while the gang are too young to be placed into discernible classes and are more or less hippies, the villains of these stories always turn out to be members of the upper class. You may make the observation that Daphne is shown to have come from a wealthy family. Thelma has likewise come from a family that is not poorly off, and Scooby-Doo is, in fact, a dog. I will argue that the amount of time that the characters spend away from their parents, jetting around in their hippie van, suggests that they are all financially independent enough from their parents that their wealth should not be considered indicative of their own class. Anyway, while this is a theme that is proliferated throughout most of the franchise with few deviations, I will focus on the original Scooby-Doo Where Are You series. These episodes maintain a consistent use of formula, in that a supernatural threat is introduced alongside a cast of new characters and a location, locals are affected by the haunting, the gang farts around for a bit, gets a little scared here and there, and then they eventually capture the ghost before Velma reveals that she knew about it all along, that it wasn't a ghost, but one of the locals who curses them and exclaims that they would have gotten away with it if it weren't for those meddling kids. You've heard the story like, uh, I don't even know. Indeed, the bulk of the characters that turn out to be the villains of the story are wealthy, upper-class characters. Internet nerds have supposed that the show takes place after a significant economic collapse, and as a result, there are a lot of houses that are left abandoned, and there are a lot of people with big fancy degrees who had no jobs, but really that's unimportant. 
The implication that these wealthy characters are so useless to society that they are literally haunted by them suggests that many members of the upper class are mere burdens on society since they can no longer live with contributing anything positive to society. Certainly, each villain has its own motivations, but at the end of the day, no one's worried about what they're going to do with old uh, Sailor Man, the retired sailor who just sits around all day, and I don't know. The show presents a thesis that is quite reflective of how the youth feel in relation to issues of class. It suggests that it is the responsibility of the youths of society to ensure that these villains are brought to justice despite their appearance suggesting that they are above the law. This is especially relevant to the time This is especially relevant to the time in which Hanna-Barbera was writing this show and it was being produced and everything considering the mass dissolution with authority that was occurring with Richard Nixon and everything. Anyway, having seen and even signed my fair share of petitions coordinated by younger people looking to make positive changes to the world to the detriment of the wealthy, ah, take that. This doesn't seem far off from how real university students see themselves or high school high school students for that matter. Anyway, in this way, the show motivates its viewers to take justice into their own hands and to utilize unconventional tactics in order to achieve justice, unlike that which can be delivered by more conventional law enforcement services. Personally, I think this is quite a positive med- message. It doesn't seem very dangerous because they're not condoning violence, because the Scooby-Doo gang are wholesome and I love them, and I think we'll, we'll move on from here. So... Sorry to any Buffy stands who are hoping for me to talk about Buffy at length. Um, conceptually, it had a lot of overlap with the other works I wanted to look at, and I couldn't really justify a full breakdown. Also, I'm not the biggest expert on Buffy, as it happens. Um, in short, the most interesting thing about Buffy in regards to this topic is Angel, who's a vampire who hunts other vampires as a means of gaining redemption denying himself the niceties of being a vampire, for example, blood, in preference of what is morally right. I think that Angel deserves a medal. There's little to really analyze here that we can't see anywhere else other than this redemption arc, really. It's, um, yeah, I'm sure plenty, plenty of rich people do not want to exploit the, the lower classes. This is something we're aware of. Um, That's all I have to say on this note. Now, the supernatural brand of ghost hunting. Yeah, we're talking about supernatural now. Sorry, everyone. It's, anyway, the supernatural brand of ghost hunting is usually under the more adult label of demon slaying. It's more akin to that of the Scooby-Doo gang than a working class job, similar to that of a gun for hire in that these two act as mercenaries who also sort of solve crime. But effectively, they just get rid of ghosts and get paid for it, whether this be with actual money, with a place to stay until they move on, or, God forbid, pie. Yep. It's a neo-nomadic lifestyle, and it contrasts greatly with other examples that we've seen before. 
Anyway, while the pair have certain hidey holes in old houses that they frequent, there's nothing tying them down to one place in the same way that Mulder will always be dicking around in his office or something. However, unlike all other examples we have previously looked at, this series emphasizes an element of the practice that is not really looked at in any other incarnation of the vocation, incarnation of the vocation that can be found in pop culture. Mainly, the series discusses ghost hunting as a craft in a way that no other series that I have found does. After the death of their mother, Sam and Dean are pushed into a life of fighting demons. This establishes the art as something of a family business, something not unheard of in trades, with mum and pop stores being popular for their familial promise of quality as a result of trustworthiness, but most importantly for the notion of the craft having been perfected over time, maybe even passed down from past generations, ancestors. Supernatural has this down pat, with episodes that have the gang refer to the practice as a job. This element makes Sam's abandonment of the hunting lifestyle in pursuit of becoming a lawyer all the more poignant. Of course, it makes his return to the hunting lifestyle even more interesting, and then it ended recently, and we, yeah. In addition, the ways in which the gang are rewarded for their hard work is distinctively like that of a member of a trade. You invite them into your home, and if you do a good job, you give them a cold one, a few kind words, and then you send them on their way so that they can move on to the next job. And there will always be another job, it seems. And I mean, sure, the brothers have much larger motivations than getting paid. So do a lot of tradesmen. I mean, a lot of people are passionate about their work in the in the working class, and I think that they respect their work as Sam and Dean do. I mean, the the brothers have this work line of work that is practically essential. I mean, they saved the world like what sixty nine fucking times by the end of the series. And, I mean, in a way, I think that the members of the working class are like, yeah, this isn't an unpopular opinion, but, like, yeah, the working class are, like, the backbone of the society. They save this, they save us every single time we need, like, a new, like, a fridge replaced or something like that. Society couldn't fucking function. You think... Now, the Mario Brothers... The Mario brothers, while having held many jobs between themselves, are distinctly working class. They've been carpenters, doctors, hotel managers, and the like. But if you ask anyone what are Mario and Luigi's jobs, no motherfucker is going to tell you they play baseball. Bitch, everybody knows it's Mario the plumber and Luigi follows suit. Because he's kind of a bitch that way, but like, you know, anyway... Besides, you could argue that since Dr. Mario is presented as an entirely different character in the Smash Brothers series, Dr. Mario could be an entirely separate entity from the plumber Mario, and therefore we can't count the most white-collar job he has ever held by the pair as something he's actually held. Oh yeah, that's right, Dr. Luigi exists, that's a thing. So, if you see where this is going, you deserve a medal. Um, Luigi's most memorable outing as an individual character has been his foray into ghost hunting, 
with the original Luigi's Mansion game being a highlight of the GameCube lineup. And I heard 3 was alright. Um, I own 2, but I've heard literally nothing about it outside of me having played it. It's alright. Anyway, the first one is Divine, so we're just going to look at that. Uh, there are a few things I'd like to discuss about this game that are aesthetically interesting. First, in this game, Luigi acts as a complete subordinate to Professor Igad, the naughty professor who, for the sake of the thesis, we will label the man. He made the tools, he gives them to Luigi, and expects him to do the dirty work. Oh, and that's the second thing. The main tool of the trade, the Poltergust 3000, is a vacuum. Now, while this is clearly a nod to the Proton Pack from the Ghostbusters film, with the inclusion of the vacuum on his back, Luigi is effectively a glorified cleaner, although it's definitely not much worse than the gig Mario got that same year. That's interesting, huh? Anyway, a feature of the plot that strikes me is that, like any other Mario game that has come before it, the goal of the main character is to liberate a friend, love interest, or family member from a great evil. I hope that, in this case, Mario is only one or two out of three of those things. But what makes this game stand out from most others in the Mario universe in that these two characters, the Professor and the Handyman, have two very different goals. One of research and one of saviour, and the former's character's motivations are less righteous. Luigi is exploited by the Professor that, so that he may acquire specimens for research with Luigi being instructed to capture ghosts at the request of the scientist who provides no other alternative. Additionally, it is worthy of note that King Boo has imprisoned Mario with a, within a painting, just as Professor Egad was said to have done to King Boo before he broke out and created the mansion. Hmm. Consider the similarities between King Boo and Mario. The gleaming red jewel and the iconic red hat, it seems more like King Boo is enacting revenge upon the Professor more than anything else, and that Luigi is more or less just caught up in the middle of this all, only willing to support the misdeeds of the higher class due to the consequences that their actions have had on him as an individual. There's very strong potential for a post-colonial reading of this, um, but at the end of the day, the important point is Lu Luigi is entrapped into acting out the will of this nasty old man for the benefit of an upper class who would otherwise be quite indifferent to his plea if they were unable to exploit it for the sake of research and the evasion of a colony of often supernatural beings that appear at times to be rather harmless in some cases. The last example I'd like to look at is... Disney's 1937 short, Lonesome Ghosts, which has Mickey, Goofy, and Donald working at Ajax Ghost Exterminators. It's worthy of note that the gang's employment by the Ajax Corporation is recurrent in many of their adventures with Ajax locksmiths, Ajax door fixers, and other jobs that I assure you, I promise, are not related to doors, but are as recognisable as consistent in their hiring of their blue-collar workforce. Anyway, this nine-minute short predates all the works we've already looked at, and it has Goofy wearing a Deerstalker hat, which may have been popularised by Sherlock Holmes, but was typically worn by hunters, usually hunters of deer, as the name would suggest. 
This contrasts directly with the fashion of the gang's deceased nemeses who sport bowler hats and other fancy dress. So basically, the ghosts themselves assumed to have been quite upper class before they passed away, call the gang up after finding their ad in a paper, and decide to mess around with them for shits and giggles. While the ghosts do have this desire to pull shenanigans as enough motivation to create issues for the crew, there's a distinct classist subtext within the story, with these aristocratic ghosts mocking the working class as one might prank a lowly bartender. Moreover, the phantoms seem to assume the level of intelligence amongst the trio is below average, and admittedly they are correct considering all the shit they get up to in the next 7 or 8 minutes, but it was rude of them to assume this. Like most ghost related cinema, this short is about fear at its core, and with that I'd like to look at the resolution to the story, which has the ghosts scared out of the house because the gang fucks up. They fuck up so bad that they accidentally pour all these ingredients onto themselves, and it makes them look like ghosts, and it scares the other ghosts away. Um, if you think about this for a second, this is difficult to interpret. Although, at the very least, it implies that there is some sort of hierarchy among ghosts, and that those nasty ghosts bullying the gang are like these beta male ghosts, and they mistake the gang for like a Chad ghost or something. Does this suggest that beyond the grave there is something other than money that dictates one place in society? Are these ghosts bullying these mortals because at the end of the day they are ghosts of poor character who just want to feel better about themselves? Why else do people who are living bully other people? Why else do people make fun of the working class? So the million dollar question at this point is what characteristic decides one's place in this chain of being? Is it age? Are these ghosts supposed to look older? Were they more moral in their past life? Do they just look spookier? Um, like, I guess there are a lot of answers to this that have been answered in, uh, for example, the Rig Vedas, I'm sure, uh, some stuff in that Bible thing, and the Quran, of course. Um, none of them mention this, do they just look spooky and nonsense, but I feel like this is a question that is beyond the depth of this essay again, so I think I'm going to move on as these ghosts have failed to do. And I'm going to talk about the conceptual side of this more now. So, to understand how the working class ghost hunter became a nearly universal trope in Western media, we have to first understand the occupation as it exists in these fantastical universes in which ghosts are confirmed to exist is influenced by the occupation as it exists in real life in which paranormal activity is generally assumed to be pure fiction and that all people who associate themselves with it are therefore dismissed as wackos. As a result, the ghost hunters that one can hire in real life don't get as much work as those characters that they inspired, and aside from the niche areas of parapsychology, cryptozoology, and other obscure subtopics within science, 
there's no degree one can acquire in any respectable university that is entirely focused on just spooky nonsense. To legitimize their profession, ghost hunters will use these kooky gadgets and precise methodologies in order to make their profession look more well professional. Now, the author John Potts has referred to this smoke and mirrors of EMF readers and all those other doohickeys as techno-mysticism, as in giving the illusion of being highly scientific, but ultimately failing in doing so. Paranormal investigation has existed in this form for over a century, but I'd like to take a closer look into how the act was conducted even further back into history, as in when more people actually believed in this shite. But first, it's worth mentioning the slurry of ghost hunting reality TV shows that began haunting shows like Fox in more recent years of television, in which these trusty ghost hunters rely on this phenomenon of techno-mysticism in the same way that a window cleaner relies on a safety line, or maybe more accurately how those fairy princesses that you can hire for children's birthday parties rely on fairy dust. It's an absolute necessity that these people maintain this facade of methodology regardless of the fact that the real skill the job requires is actually the ability to improvise pseudo-scientific bullshittery. For anyone interested in learning more about these sorts of shows, there's always a video, The Worst Ghost Hunting Show of All Time, by Jenny Nicholson. I'll put a link in the description alongside everything else I re reference in this video. Anyway, my point is that these guys aren't working class ghost hunters. They're actors posing as professionals for the silver screen. Even if you believe in ghosts, and you wholeheartedly believe in everything that occurs in these sorts of shows, for one thing, welcome, hello, hi, but also, consider that the likes of Judge Judy, Dr. Phil, and Rick Harrison are, while certainly experienced and qualified in their respective fields of law, psychology, and selling battle toads, they are, for the purposes of the television show, presenters, and often actors first and foremost, and should be recognised as such. Nevertheless, the world that these shows exist within have ghost detection as a more intellectual pursuit, more akin to a doctor sussing out what's wrong with a patient with all of his fancy gadgets before they reach a diagnosis. Now, let's get on the dream train at the uh, imagination station, and uh, let's picture something for a moment. Personally, I can imagine a show about ghost hunting, but instead of these nerds, it just stars the people that you'd find in, like, Duck Dynasty. The mental image of a show of this nature with these buff, redneck dudes doing no prior research, just receiving a call and breaking down the door of the house, shooting at thin fucking air while screaming about how they sense a ghost like they're the three fucking stooges, is simply too much. In contrast, if you confuse the audience with technological mumbo-jumbo and uh, enthusiasm, you'll appear considerably less moronic. I've seen a few of these shows, and I don't think I recall any instance of an episode where these hunters really solved any problems. The best they can do is say, yep, 
there's ghosts, and everyone applauds, but yeah, that's enough of that. So, I've already mentioned the importance of priests in performing exorcisms in pop culture. This is because priests, shaman, and other holy men have historically been held responsible for ridding someone of demons or warding off bad omens. In fact, if you ask nicely, your local priest would probably be willing to conduct an exorcism for you. But as to non-religious people doing this sort of work, it's a little more varied, but a good example of this from history comes from Macedonia. Detailed in George Abbott's Folklore in Macedonia from 1903, the belief in paranormal creatures in folklore across the Balkans seems to have necessitated for the occupation of ghost hunters, well specifically monster hunters, vampire hunters, to exist, with both professional and semi-professional hawthorns, as they were often referred to due to the type of wood that the stakes were often made from for killing vampires. I know this is about ghost hunting, but, you know, it's sort not exactly the same thing, but historical equivalent-wise, they would also have been asked to deal with ghosts, so stay with me here. In Macedonia, these beings were known as... I will try to pronounce it myself. Thrikol... Kolokas? Free Kolokas? I've heard this is a Greek word. Um, anyway. While many of these hunters were supposed to have carried crucifixes, holy water, and other religious artifacts of those type, it doesn't appear that the hunter had to be associated with the church beyond the expectation of the normal citizen, that being faith. It's worthy of note that it was believed that those who had been born on a Saturday, named Sabbatarians in some regions, would be able to see these dudes and other spirits who would appear otherwise invisible to non-Sabbatarians. But other than that, the average vampire hunter, who was also expected to deal with various other supernatural creatures, seems to have been as religious as Mama Luigi. This is... Certainly, a notable dichotomy between ghost hunters and vampire hunters, but they're in the same areas of exterminators specialised in paranormal entities, so it's worthy of note, I know. Keep in mind that these guys didn't only exist in just the Dark Ages. They've existed so late into history that some sources talk about them carrying revolvers and crowbars. And the work published by Abbott in 1903 isn't presented as something entirely historical. It appears that, like, such superstitions were taken seriously by many people in the culture, and this was published only a decade prior to the Great War. Hmm. These fellas seem to have taken a goofy approach to hunting, while employing methodology more akin to the folks in Supernatural. The fictional ghost hunting occupation seems to place this line of work into a highly commercialized setting, although each one seems to be disconnected from any sort of ghost hunting institution, with the exception of Supernatural which has the hunters draw on an extensive range of writings on hunting, complete with guides to killing particular creatures, and in some cases references to special tools of the trade. Of course, Fred likes his traps, but this seems to be more of a special interest. 
In the extended lore, Fred's parents are quite baffled by his interests in traps, but they come to accept his passion with time. Mickey and the gang, on the other hand, seem to be in it for the cash more than anything. Anyway, I hope you had a little fun while I overanalyze these pieces. But I'm not done yet, because I'm really quite interested in it, why it is the case that such an occupation has been so depicted in this way. That's why I did this, after all. Why is the profession of getting rid of ghosts seem to be more similar to pet exterminators or the like, as opposed to someone like a doctor or a psychologist? Surely it would make sense for the connection between supernatural experiences and mental health issues to justify the comparison of the Ghostbusters to the mental illness busters that we have in real life. But even the priest in The Exorcist is a man of faith, not a white collar worker. Priests have those weird black collars. Could it be that confronting one's demons is supposed to be below the high class people and it should only be the poor who experience genuine toil in life? Is this what we're supposed to believe? So to understand why the audience has come to recognize this fictional occupation as distinctly working class, it's peculiar, but it's so ingrained in the collective subconscious of the Western audience that to imagine a show that has a character acquiring a college degree in spookology or a major in ghouls and a minor in the creeper or whatever would seem rather subversive of the ghost hunting subgenre. Even in a universe where ghosts are assumed by many to exist in the same way that I could study religion and niche new wave religions as part of a university degree. I'm certain I'm going to be punished with comments for making this video, all saying that this show has that, but I will assert that any instance of ghost hunting as a more intellectual pursuit is going against the status quo that is mysteriously upheld by more mainstream pieces of media. Anyway, this has been a cursory analysis of the ghost hunting occupation as it exists in popular media. Obviously, I've missed a handful of examples, a few popular ones even, and I'd be interested in any other examples people could provide of interesting examples of ghost hunting in movies, cartoons, books, games, and even anime if you're into that. Feel free to comment if you have anything to add. This is a very large topic and I'd like to hear more about it, but other than that, until next time.